0: I know there is considerable concern and skepticism about the pricing of EpiPens. Now a package of two is going for over $700. is being accused of trying to pay less in the way of taxes, though it actually only costs about two bucks to make the thing.
1: Welcome to EDECMO. Welcome. Welcome to EDECMO.
2: Welcome. 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 This is Ed ECMO. I'm Zach Shiner and today I'm standing with my daughter... In Rite Aid, our local pharmacy here in Del Mar, California. The reason I'm here with my daughter is to pick up a prescription for an EpiPen. You see, my daughter has allergies. Bryn, what, what are you allergic to?
3: Every kind of nut except for almonds and pistachio.
2: Now, to be honest, I'm not even sure she's allergic to nuts. But in a classic overworkup so common in medicine that I swore I would never let my family be a part of, Bryn has been diagnosed with nut allergies. She's had skin pricks, blood tests. All knowing that the false positives on these things are very high. Bryn, tell us what what were your symptoms when you ate nuts?
3: My mommy gave me a peanut butter jelly sandwich when I was a baby.
2: <laughs> and what happened?
3: I I took a nap, and I was totally fine, and then when I woke up, I had a rash around my
2: mouth. And have you ever eaten peanuts after that? No. So isolated rash around the mouth, false positive tests. This all makes the whole workup for chest pain and exercise stress tests almost look worthwhile in comparison. Now you may ask, what in the world does an EpiPen have to do with ECMO? And that's where our story gets a little bit more interesting.
3: I can't eat Pad Thai, but we're not at a Thai place, so there's no peanuts in
1: that. That's the voice of Conrad Soriano, a 27-year-old.
2: And Joe and I are going to take you through one of the craziest cases of anaphylaxis and EDVV ECMO.
3: Yeah, because my mom told me as a kid, or they did a rad test or allergy test. So, like, from there on, she already knew, so we avoided it. And, like, there's some Filipino dishes that have peanut butter, so we don't cook that. And just, uh, you know, I can't have Mr. Good bars and stuff like that. I've never had an anaphylaxis reaction. I've had little reactions like, oh, my lips swollen. OK, let's take some Benadryl or I get a little hive.
2: So Conrad, like my daughter, has had a skin prick diagnosis of peanut allergies. He's had some minor reactions, but nothing major. But that's all going to change this night, where Conrad will have one of the scariest moments of his entire life. He was out with his friends, avoiding peanuts as usual, eating some dumplings from a Thai restaurant, a little bit of drinking, a little bit of carrying on, and the next thing you know, Conrad's in bad shape.
3: And then I guess it just finally hit me. Yeah. My family said uh, I was going in and out of the bathroom. That's when they were starting to notice, like, what's going on? Yeah. Acting weird. Derek got a phone call, and I was like, hey, can you come outside? And when he went outside, you know, he saw me on the floor. He was wondering, like, what happened. Maybe I got beat up or something. Like, why am I on the... Yeah, and then he was like, oh, take your inhaler. They took my inhaler out and gave me a puff. And then I went, took a breath in, and I didn't breathe out. So then then they are like, oh, you know. And they they said they sat there for about a minute, like, trying to figure everything out. Like, are you sure, Conrad? Like, oh, take your inhaler. Come on. You know, what's wrong? And then when they saw that, it was, I couldn't breathe out. They're like, oh, I think it's serious. Then they ran inside, called yeah. 911.
4: Uh, so I was just coming on to shift that night.
2: That's the voice of Andrew Eades, an emergency physician at our hospital, Sharp Memorial.
4: Uh, the off-going ER doctor let me know that there was a bad anaphylaxis patient coming in who had gone apneic on scene and was being resuscitated by the medics. Um, given how sick the guy sounded, I made my way out to the ambulance ramp to sort of receive him as soon as they parked. Uh, And I looked inside and saw the monitor showing uh, oxygen saturation of 50%. I saw a patient who looked purple uh, and clearly was not doing well at all. Uh, We rushed him into the uh, resuscitation bay. He had already been successfully intubated by the paramedics. uh, And it was immediately clear that uh, his biggest problem was getting him ventilated. we gave him a little more epinephrine and we were able to oxygenate him pretty successfully, but getting air out of this guy's lungs was near impossible at that point. Uh, clearly, our, our ventilator wasn't doing the job. Um, and we resolved to basically take him off the ventilator altogether and bagging him. Uh, intermittently, we'd take him off of the bag and I would put my full body weight on his chest and try to squeeze the air out. Now I could hear had my ear right next to the ET tube. I could hear this loud squeaking sound, you know, for the eight or ten seconds that I was laying on his chest, as air would just barely squeak out of his airways, um, and uh, we knew we were in for um, a real uh, difficult resuscitation uh, when that was taking place. Uh, this reminded me of like the bad asthmatics I had treated in the past, where it was once we had intubated them, once we had intubated them, the uh, challenge really began.
2: So, Doctor Ead's next step was to get Doctor Kevin Shaw. One of our intensivists involved in the care of Conrad's case.
0: At that moment, when I when I met that gentleman, uh, it was obvious that that all the best practices that that we had uh, available to us at, at that time were being instituted. He was being ventilated as appropriately as we could. He had gotten epinephrine, he'd gotten bronchodilators, he'd gotten corticosteroids, uh, but his pH was dropping, his PCO two was was rising, and I was concerned. Uh, about some, you know, end organ damage and, and certainly uh, arrhythmia and death as an immediate result. But you know, this, this acidosis and the elevated PCO two is going to lead to kidney dysfunction, brain dysfunction, um, you know, cardiac dysfunction. So at that moment, uh, knowing that everything that we had tried was was not sufficient, we, uh, the emergency physician and I, made the decision to institute VV ECMO uh, right then and there in the emergency department.
2: So tell me, we're at this point. We've got this guy. He is in clear distress. pH is low. PCO2 is high. Are you actually thinking of putting someone on VV ECMO in the air?
1: I'll tell you, I've never thought of needing VV ECMO in a crashing patient. But this is a situation where it really may be another tool in our toolbox.
2: So the guy's failed intubation. He's failed uh, an epidrip. And now we're going to do a blind placement of an Avalon catheter in the ER?
1: There's some controversy both ways in terms of putting an Avalon versus going femoral, femoral, veno, venous, ECMO. But I think we're going to hear more about that in a little bit.
0: So, you know, this is, this is certainly a case where I've, I've employed the retrospectoscope. And, and, and I, I think uh, happily so, because, you know, if I were in this position again, I would do things similarly, but, but not exactly the same. Um, so in this particular patient... Uh, When we decided to approach the right internal jugular vein and insert the Avalon catheter, um, initially you you prep and drape the patient like you would with any IJ central line. So the patient had uh, been sterilized. We had, you know, full uh, OR style sterile uh, gowns and and drapes and gloves and hairnets and masks and everything. And we used ultrasound uh, guidance to to, uh, access the internal jugular vein. So that part is relatively straightforward. Now, the the wire that's provided in, in the kit for this uh, particular dual lumen catheter insertion, and, and we have other uh, insertion kits that we, we work with when needed, uh, the wire is quite long, and it's much longer than the typical central line wire that most people work with, and that's because the catheter itself is uh, significantly longer. So as you insert the wire, the first thing that I was feeling is, you know, is the wire going in smoothly? Is it going the way that I expect it to go, if it had any sort of resistance or kink or felt like it was bending, that's a sign that something's wrong. Because where I'm aiming is all the way down the internal jugular vein, you know, to the right atrium, through the atrium, and essentially into the, uh, the IVC, going through the inferior vena cava, uh, trying, of course, to bypass hepatic veins, so you don't want to wedge it into a hepatic vein either, and getting it you know, heading down towards the legs and, and into the abdomen. So doing it blindly, which means I was going, doing the best I could based on feel, and in this particular patient, I felt that the wire passed extremely smoothly. I had no resistance whatsoever. I was able to pass it all the way down. Because of that, I felt relatively comfortable that it was not likely going uh, into the right ventricle and coiling up. It probably wasn't going into a hepatic vein or an azagous vein and coiling up there um, because you would expect obstruction there. So because the wire passed so smoothly, I felt pretty good that we were going in the right direction. I also verified with ultrasound, um, looking on the neck, following the wire into the chest, say, okay, the wire is going in the right direction, it's passing down into the chest, um, and and was able to reassure myself in that regard. Something that I didn't do, but in retrospect would, would certainly consider, is actually looking at the inferior vena cava, with the ultrasound. So you can actually press the probe on the abdomen just under the rib cage, on the right-hand side, find the IVC, and move the wire and see if you can see the wire in that position. If you can, you know, you can feel pretty confident that the wire has been placed where you want it to go.
1: So one of the concerns, of course, is if you're putting in a dual-lumen Avalon catheter blind, there's risk that the wire could go down into the right ventricle, and if the Avalon catheter follows it, it could perforate the right ventricle.
0: Um, after the wire is in and I, I pulled out the Seldinger needle, um, you make, you know, a, a pretty healthy incision, uh, a bigger incision than than you typically would with a central line, and then you have a series of, of dilations to do. Um, because of the size of these dual lumen catheters, uh, they, they come in, I think, 27 French, maybe 30 French. You need to dilate quite a bit, um, so much so that, you know, <laughs> you get nervous as you pull out each dilator. Uh, because because uh, with that there's there's a decent amount of blood loss. So of course you're holding pressure with a sterile towel, which I was doing. Um, I did a series of dilations. I think we we probably dilated three or four times uh, with larger and larger dilators uh, until I was able to get the uh, Avalon to pass. Uh, you know, with with minimal resistance, I should say it wasn't completely smooth. Um, because I didn't want to over-dilate. I was trying to have a, a bit of a, a hemostatic seal around the Avalon catheter if I could. So I was able to pass it uh, with, with a minimal amount of resist. Um, now, how did I know how deep to put the Avalon catheter? I'm holding an Avalon catheter here uh, in, in front of me. And there's a few things you can see. So the first you can see is that there's, there's two lumens here. Um, one is, is a, a straight shot, and the other one is, is the side port that sort of comes off. And it's great because they even have an arrow on it to tell you, you know, which way blood flow goes. So the side port is what we would consider to be the arterial port or sort of the blood return port. And there's an arrow indicating blood sort of going back into it. And I learned from one of my colleagues about a year ago, as well as from having messed with these catheters, that the side port that comes off for blood delivery, which you want to aim into the right atrium, is on the same side as this side port coming off the catheter. So if you think about it, if this is coming into the right side of a patient, you want to have this side port aiming medially, and thus this side port uh, at the end of the catheter is going to be up against uh, you know, the chin, sort of pressing up against the face. And you can turn it a little bit, but generally you want to have it in this direction. Now, when I tried to figure out how deep to put it, uh, I did it uh, somewhat similar to how you would measure a, a feeding tube or a gastric tube before insertion. Which is I held the, the the catheter up to the patient and I estimated, okay, you know, here's the insertion site, here's where the side port is. I used the level of, of the nipples as a sort of a rough approximation to where the right atrium would be, and said, Okay, I want to insert it to about this point. And I kind of, you know, looked, there's depth markers on the catheter, and you can you can, you know, choose how many centimeters deep you want to insert and said, Okay, I'm gonna put it to about that depth. That seems to be uh, the appropriate depth. About where the RA is, with the assumption that we would uh, readjust later on either using x-ray or fluoroscopy. Uh, so I then inserted the catheter. Um, it fortunately slid uh, relatively easily. It didn't seem to catch or hang up like I was going into a ventricle or going into a hepatic vein. It slid down uh, to the the site at which I had previously determined, to the depth uh, that I determined, and uh, to the best of my ability, I thought, okay, we're, we're in the right spot. Um, I turned it so that this uh, side arm was aiming medially. Tells me that the the arterial uh, exit point for the blood is going to be facing towards the right atrium, and uh, and then sutured it in place. You know, took out the the stiffener slash uh, uh, dilator, took out the wire. um, You know, ended up clamping it as again I'm sure will be covered uh, in the uh, procedural section, and then sutured it in place. And when I sutured it in place, I, I put in uh, four or five different packs of suture, not only trying to keep it from sliding up or down, keeping it from getting dislodged, but also from turning. And in my, my previous experience with Avalon catheters, I had uh, seen some of these catheters get rotated either uh, through patient movement or patient transport or just the nature of how they were uh, inserted. And so I tried to suture it in such a way that not only was it going to be secure, but also not rotate. So I sutured it. Uh, against the patient's neck, and I put in suture around the side port, too, to hold it in the position that I wanted. Um, After that, I then, you know, put on plenty of Tegaderm to keep it sterile uh, and and clean, and then I taped it with some foam tape, again, over that, just to uh, keep the positioning where I wanted it.
2: All right, quick recap of what Kevin just said. We're talking about placement of a dual-lumen Avalon catheter. This is a catheter that will pull out blood out of the distal and proximal ports, and in the middle port will push blood back in, hopefully into the right side of the heart, the right atrium, and into the right ventricle. The way you do this is with Seldinger technique, just like any other catheter placement. You're going to dilate up hoping not to over-dilate so that you have a good seal. We're talking about large cannulas here. We're talking about 27 French or 31 French in typical adults. You want to make sure that you suture the catheter in place. And even more important here is that you get the side port of the catheter facing the right atrium and into the right ventricle so that you can avoid recirculation. As far as moving ahead, in the ER, we are not going to have the gold standard, the idea of using fluoro to assess where that cannula is uh, pushing blood. So other things that you can use is a TEE. If you don't have the ability to use TEE, we're now talking about shooting serial x-rays. First X-rays to make sure that your wire goes into the IVC. You don't want that wire coiling into the right atrium or into even the right ventricle. As far as after you place the catheter, you can then look at small breaks in the side of the catheter to see if your catheter is actually in the right place. All right, Joe, the $100 million question is, who do we place on VV ECMO in the ER?
1: Gosh, Zach, you know, before this case, I really never thought there would be an indication for veno-venous ECMO in the emergency department. You know, I suppose the cases where patients cannot rid themselves of CO2 because they can't ventilate might be the only real indication. This would be CO2 scrubbing, like CO2 dialysis. Uh, I suppose the bad anaphylaxis case like this, maybe a bad asthmatic, bad COPD, maybe indications, but God, I really hope I never have to do this in the emergency department myself.
2: All right. So ECOR, the idea of removing carbon dioxide is certainly something that has been around for ECMO. How about even pie in the sky? What if we actually had VV ECMO as our failed intubation last resort sort of thing? Sort of not not prime time, but maybe at some point this could be the ultimate crike is just placing them on VV ECMO. Okay, but a lot of controversy actually not only with who do we place in the ER, but also upstairs in the ICU. Patients that we talk about, like the H1N1 epidemic was a big part of this. ARDS is what we really look at in not only the medical setting, but also in the trauma setting. So we had the two big trials for this, which was the Caesar trial out of the UK and then ANZECMO trial from New Zealand and Australia. Both looked at different types of patient populations, but I wanted to introduce someone to you. Melissa Brunswald out of the University of Minnesota and her slightly more aggressive take on how do we treat patients upstairs with ARDS and when we should be taking these patients and putting them on VV ECMO. People are going much earlier to ECMO. For example, as soon as we consider prone positioning, we're considering ECMO. Anybody who has a PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, so if they're on 100% FiO2 and their PaO2 is 120, anybody at that range should be considered for ECMO. Okay, so the indications for VV ECMO are still hazy. Upstairs, the real question is, do we put them on immediately when they're sick, and we can avoid some of these problems that occur with having being on the vent for a week? Or do we wait until they've failed every other type of positioning before we put them on VV ECMO? Downstairs in the ER, the question is slightly different. The question is, is the risk of putting them on VV ECMO sometimes in a austere setting, in a blind setting? Is that risk less than the risk that they would have if they did not get the VV ECMO? In Conrad's case, he was certainly in bad shape, but Kevin's now placed him on VV ECMO, and they're going to the cath lab.
0: The dye was a typical um, cardiac contrast dye, the same that you would use for an angiography. Uh, that we got from the um, cardiac catheterization lab, which is where we, we did confirmatory fluoro on the night of insertion. We um, got the patient to the ICU. Placed arterial catheters, um, you know, repeated sets of labs, and then transported from there to the cardiac cath lab, uh, did fluoro, injected some dye, decided we were happy with things. Um, one, another sort of poor man's way to know if your catheter is in the right place is your blood gas, actually. And this was my initial confirmation that, that uh, you know, told me that we at least had something close enough to get us to the cath lab and we didn't have to adjust it immediately which was immediately after we started VV ECMO, we we repeated a blood gas, showed that the PCO2 had already started coming down, the pH had started coming up. We did another blood gas about half hour, 45 minutes later, uh, at which time the numbers had essentially normalized and things had gone back uh, just about to a sort of complete normal physiologic uh, numbers. And that told me that even if this catheter isn't perfect, it's good enough for now because it's fixing the problem that we were addressing in the first place.
1: So conceptually, putting somebody on VV ECMO, while it's you know a big deal to do that. Uh, it's conceptually easier to manage these folks than it is with VA ECMO. Where you have to worry about things like perfusion and flow rates and oxygenation because there's really no problem with oxygenating Conrad here. The big issue is that his CO2 was through the roof, and eventually he's going to result with some cardiac dysrhythmia with that kind of uh, you know, acidosis that he's developed. So really what we're trying to do is just lower the CO2. You get him on ECMO, VV ECMO, you check a blood gas, you're going to find the CO2 to be high. You're going to dial in a relatively high sweep gas rate and then slowly dial that down as you get your blood gases over the course of the next one to two hours. And I think one of the take-homes from Kevin also is
2: that we don't want to drop that CO2 too quickly, mm. right? We want, to, we want to try and get it off at a gradual rate, depending, of course, on how f- fast they went into their hypercapnic state. Another thing is you always want to kind of be thinking about what kind of recirculation you're getting. So the idea is, is that you want to think about how much of the blood is getting pulled back in that you just sent back out. So on the Avalon catheter, you have a side port that's pushing but presumptively into the right side of the heart. But if it's not positioned correctly, it can be pulled right back into either the side port that's further proximal on the cannula or the side port that's further distal on the cannula.
1: So what you're saying is recirculation is a situation where blood is coming out of the cannula that has just come out of the ECMO machine and getting sucked right back into the machine and is having no physiologic effect on the human.
2: No physiologic effect. So if you do a peripheral ABG in someone that has bad respiratory problems and a malpositioned VV ECMO cannula, then your PAO2 is still going to be low. So you might want to consider repositioning that cannula. Now, there's other problems that could be from a P- low PaO2. For example, you're flow might be too low through the VV circuit
1: or you haven't connected your oxygen source
2: or you haven't now who would ever do that never okay. done it before yeah okay maybe i did so yes you get, i mean all these little troubleshooting things but in VV ECMO particularly you want to start
1: thinking just about recirculation and for clarity that recirculation can happen with the dual lumen Avalon catheter or it can happen with bifemoral or femoral jugular venovenous ECMO so, right.
2: So in, even if you're not using the Avalon catheter, if you're using the two separate single cannulas, it can happen. And it can even happen in VA ECMO. Now, we haven't really mentioned this on the podcast too much, but the idea of north-south phenomenon, there's a number of different names for this. I won't get into the eponyms. But I want you to just think for a second about what happens in VA ECMO as far as recirculation. So if you have a catheter that's pushing blood on the femoral artery and then it goes up and gets pulled right down into the opposite femoral artery, into the leg, goes back up into the inferior vena cava and gets sucked back through the venous cannula, but never actually makes it to the important parts, right? It never makes it to the brain. It never makes it to the heart. And so you could have the best perfused opposite extremity without a lot of blood the brain. So I want you to just think about recirculation is is a problem in a lot of things, but in VV ECMO, it's a big issue.
1: So Zach, if what we're doing constantly in the emergency department is VA ECMO, it's always VA, it's VA, VA, VA. We're teaching VA on the ED ECMO podcast. We're teaching VA at reanimate. Why in the world would you ever consider putting somebody on VV ECMO?
2: Okay this is where stuff gets pretty cool from a physiologic standpoint. So, if so, if you put someone that has a normal EF on VA ECMO, so they have crappy lungs, whatever the problem is, anaphylaxis, asthma, I don't care, whatever it is. They're getting a low PaO2, low or high PCO2 through their lungs. They have crappy lungs but a great heart. Now you have the problem that if you're using VA ECMO, that that blood does get pumped out and it does hit the coronary arteries and it does hit the carotids first, okay? If you have VA ECMO and it's pushing against it, there's going to be a point where these two streams meet and it's going to be distal to the coronaries and it's probably gonna be distal to the carotids. So you actually could be helping them way more by putting that patient on VV ECMO Because that patient has great oxygenation of the blood going out through the left ventricle and great removal of CO2 of the blood that's coming out of the left ventricle, as opposed to a patient that's on VA ECMO, which actually has crappy perfusion of both the coronaries as
1: well as the carotids. And we're talking about the situation where you have two competing pumps in VA ECMO, the heart pump competing against the ECMO machine pump. And we're avoiding that by using VV, venovenous instead of VA ECMO.
2: All right, bad lungs, good heart, think VV ECMO. So what happened to Conrad? Let's find out.
0: And uh, once we got ECMO initiated and running, we were immediately able to uh, back off on his ventilator, give him sort of minimal ventilator settings, got his PCO2 under control, got his oxygen under control, got his pH normalized, and uh, within a very short amount of time, he was able to be... uh, taken off ECMO and extubated and and sent home a few days later. It was really amazing.
3: I was like, hey, I'm alive. Like, I don't know what really happened, but I'm alive. And, you know, they're all happy and crying. They're like, okay, yeah, we're going to go visit you. We're still in Temecula packing. My mom came in and, you know, of course, she was crying and so happy. And I was like, oh, mom, give me the phone.
0: When I returned back to the hospital about two days later, I came in and met Conrad for the first time. He was at that point still on the mechanical ventilator, but he was awake, he was interactive, he was communicating, he was writing notes, and it was the most joyous feeling you can possibly imagine to see this young man who had been so close to death now awake, alert, and able to
4: enjoy his family. And to see him basically walk out and be a part of his family and be able to talk and walk and interact and and basically be the same guy he was before he came in. It's just so exciting and it's, it's really what you live for in emergency medicine.
3: Now I feel like I have two birthdays. My birthday when I was born and my birthday when I woke up in the hospital.
2: Special thanks to... Doctor Kevin Shaw, the intensivist from Sharp Memorial, Dr. Andrew Eads, the emergency physician that take care of Conrad, especially Conrad Soriano for being available for the podcast. Melissa Brunswald from the University of Minnesota.
1: And let's not forget
2: Bryn Shiner with her quote unquote allergies. From Joe Belezzo and Zach Shiner, this is the ED Ecmo Podcast.